Deadwood Soundwell. Not safe for work. Not safe for work. Not safe for work. Not safe for network. Welcome to Not Safe for Network. I'm Biggs. And I'm Brandon. So today we are going to talk about all the Oscar stuff. We're also going to talk about The Mandalorian towards the end of the episode as well as Peacemaker. But first, jackass. (laughs) Jackass. Forever. I was never, ever going to watch this, so lay it on us, Brandon. So my oldest daughter was back for college, and so we made the choice we're going to go see jacket and boy it was a mistake (laughs) (laughs) now why is that i have seen porn with less dick (laughs) it was 80 percent male genitalia all torturing it just showing Placid dick everywhere. Now, was it the constant dick showing that bothered you, or was it the the torture of it? It was all of the above. <laughs> the stuff I really tend to enjoy with Jackass is not necessarily just torture or just immature dick pranks. I don't know what I really do enjoy with Jackass, but... <laughs> <laughs> When did that show come out? Was it like when we were 18? Does that sound about right? Yeah, like 97, 98, somewhere in there. I feel like I left that shit behind by like 99. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like around the time Fight Club came out, I was like, I'm going to take my toxic masculinity to a new level. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And a lot of this movie really seemed beyond just guys fucking with each other it felt like it have more malicious dance. do you think maybe it's because they've been coming up with stuff to torture each other for so many years that like there's resentment now oh i definitely think so all right i gotta know what happens with the bear scene i am curious i don't want to watch it per se but i want to hear about it they covered the uh guy with honey and put salmon in his and and the bear comes in and eats all the salmon and the guy is trying to like stay cool but he is definitely losing his shit and then once the bear finishes eating all the food they get the wrangler in and pull the bear off but it it was all there i know that they do insane shit all the time but i feel like that's really really risking like killing somebody you know oh they the whole movie seemed like they were steps away for somebody die um johnny knoxville did in another uh seen with a a ball and this time he got a concussion broken ribs broken hand and permanent brain damage oh that's already happened there's a therapy an intracranial magnetic therapy he can go through and he had to do that for months that sounds awful yeah i really hope this is the last jackass Although they they brought in some new blood, and that worries me. This isn't stopping as long as it's making money. You realize that, right? Well, they're not going to get any more. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> <laughs>
I love, by the way, that Johnny Knoxville went to try and get this career in Hollywood, and yet everything he did just involved hurting himself over and over again. Yeah, so he had, like, what was it, Eddie the Hero, or, and Action Park, and I think Man in Black 2 was the only movie he did with didn't hurt himself. Oh, I'm sure he did some stunt that fucked himself up. You know what I mean? <laughs> That guy's an adrenaline junkie. I've got one more question. First, I, I have to know where you're at on this. So how familiar are you with Eric Andre? Not very much. I haven't watched the show, but I know how he exists. Did it seem like he was actually upset in the movie, or do you think he was just playing upset? I don't think he was really upset. I mean, the prank they pulled on him was really minor i i had a feeling because his talk show was all about setting up a situation and getting a guest in there and then just completely playing it straight and just irritating the shit out of the guest and finding new ways to like irritate him over and over again and so i kind of wondered if he was just putting up a show what was the prank they did on him so they had him on set and they had a fake trailer that was serving coffee and tea like a craft service and they had these like airbags set up so while you're reaching up in the trailer to get your tea the airbag would deploy and just like floor the person (laughs) which was pretty funny that might be my favorite prank of the Well, let's move on to the Academy Awards. So they had the nominations. They announced it today as we're talking for the first part of the show here. The Power of the Dog led all movies with 12 nominations, Dune with 10, West Side Story and Belfast Notch 7, and King Richard pulled down 6. Any surprises there in terms of movies that got a shitload of nominations? Power of the Dog got way too many nominations. Oh, you didn't like it. Well, we will double back to that in a few minutes because we're going to review it i was kind of surprised on king richard i haven't seen it yet so there is that but i remembered hearing that it was going to be this big oscar contender and then i feel like i heard mixed reviews when it came out and i just never got around to watching it now i guess i'm gonna have to watch it because if people are kind of new to us i tend to go crazy almost every year for the oscars i didn't last year i personally watched a lot of movies but we were kind of in that formula for box office battle and with carl our shows were going so long just talking about two movies i couldn't really fit in extra movie reviews so i let it lay last year but i tend to try and watch everyone i don't always succeed but i really really try to watch everything that's nominated and so we're definitely going to be talking about a lot of oscars in the next month or so uh so rounding out the best pictures we've got coda don't look up drive my car licorice pizza and nightmare alley i gotta say i'm pretty happy with like looking at those nominations they upped it to 10 it's just always going to be 10 for right now was there anything in there you felt strongly one way or the other about i haven't seen anything other than our i'm shocked you haven't seen don't look up yet you would love that movie it's so funny and so sarcastic and smart and it's an adam mckay joint so That's one I will probably watch here soon. I expect it to not win Best Picture just solely off the fact that it's a comedy. I mean, it has some dramatic elements to it, but it's a comedy when you boil it down. Comedies almost never win. Last time somebody won a comedy, it was Woody Allen. So there you go. 
Ooh, that's been a grip. Yeah, I think it was Annie Hall back in the 70s. So a little bit of news around the Oscars here. So Lin-Manuel Miranda has an EGOT if he wins either of his nominations for Encanto. So we might have another EGOT winner. It seems like they're just sort of serving them up every year now, isn't it? Like not just at the Oscars, but like the Emmys, the Tonys, the Grammys. They're all just like, how many do they got? Are they close? Can we give them one? Because they know like people love to tune in and, and root for it or root against it. Okay, well, you saw Encanto. Do you think he's got a shot? I really do. The movie came out several months ago, and the We Don't Talk About Bruno is the number one song. So I think he's got a really good shot. So they fucked up, and they didn't submit the stuff for Bruno soon enough. Uh, so Denzel Washington broke his own record for black actors with the no- most nominations. He's got 10. So I was looking at the overall list for actors. I think Meryl Streep has like 21 nominations. Like she leads everybody. And then uh, Catherine Hepburn had 12, but she had four wins. And then the only male that had more than Denzel Washington for nominations is Jack Nicholson. That seems kind of nuts to me. I know Jack can be great, but he kind of does the same thing over and over again. And it's a little bit surprising to me. He's been nominated so many times. I'm surprised he's been nominated more than Lee. Oh, well, Leo just had the most without a win until he finally won. (laughs) That's the thing. I think he's got like seven or eight nominations. So I think it's seven, honestly. So Spielberg has now been nominated for Best Director or as a Producer and Best Picture 19 times, which broke his own record, in which he was tied with Martin Scorsese. So he just edged out Scorsese. (laughs) So the the really weird thing here is Spielberg has been nominated for Best Director in every decade since the 70s. That's six decades, dude. Nice. It's kind of crazy, right? Yeah, he's one of those guys that never seems to go away, and then he does it again. Yeah. Let's see if we can each name one from a decade. You can go first. You want to name one from the 70s? Uh, Jaws. Good. Uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Let's do the 80s. E.T.? I got Raiders of the Lost Ark. 90s. Schindler's List. Yeah, and he won for that. He won two of them. Actually, won Best Picture and Director. And he won Best Director for Saving Private Ryan, which I'm going to throw down. Here's where I might get you. The 2000s. Nope. Can't do it. Can't do it? None of them? I think there was like Lincoln. There was Munich. Um, That's good. I named two. <laughs> There's a couple other ones. filled in for me. Yeah. All right, 2010s. God, I don't. He was up for the post a couple years ago. Yeah. I can't think of any other ones, but I know there is other ones. Okay, 2020s. Well, obviously, West Side Story. Yeah, that's all I got. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the only one he's got for the 2020s. It's pretty impressive, man. And then you consider there's a bunch of them we didn't name, right? It's pretty fucking good. And Scorsese, I was kind of surprised to see he had 18. But then I remembered he's been nominated for stuff a bunch, but he almost never wins. I think he got Best Director once. Or was it Best Director or was it just Best Picture? He definitely won Best Picture for... uh, Gangs of New York? No, no, no. He was nominated and lost on that one, which is a story a lot. It was um, the one with Mark Wahlberg. Fucking Mark Wahlberg. And uh, Leo and Matt Damon. Uh, the Departed. Jack Nicholson. All the guys we already named. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he got a best director for that. I'm not sure if he produced that one or not. But yeah, Scorsese's got quite a few. But apparently he wasn't nominated in every decade because I, I read that Spielberg's the only one who's been nominated in six different decades. So I'm guessing... Scorsese faltered in the 80s 
Because you got like Taxi Driver in the 70s, right? Right. The 90s, you probably have uh, Goodfellas. I'm sure he was up for that one. Uh, 2000s, you got like The Aviator. Uh, and he wins for The Departed. So 2010s, uh, Gangs of New York. <laughs> or wait, that's 2000s, isn't it? That's 2000s. Yeah. Okay. Man, I know there's at least one other one. Ah, it's too much of a thought exercise right now. One other piece of news that came out of it. So MGM got a film in the best picture category for the first time since 1988. Not a great track record. <laughs> That's a long time, dude. So Rain Man was the last one. So what's tricky is if you look in their library of content, it looks like they've got a bunch of them, but it's just because they acquired movies that won Best Picture later from stuff, for example, Silence of the Lambs. So when Silence of the Lambs won Best Picture, they were produced by Orion and Orion was dissolving as they won Best Picture. So like there wasn't technically a company that won that Oscar because it had already dissolved. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Like, they basically got bought out in name only later, but they had no money. They couldn't do anything. All right, so I wanted to run across some snubs. These are, like, snubs that I pointed out. I didn't go combing the internet looking for snubs here. These are just ones that I noticed from movies that I've seen. Just to be clear here, because there's a lot of movies out there. And I don't want to copy and paste other people's lists. I have stuff to contribute here. So for Best Actress, I got two of them. I should also mention anything I mention here. I'm not going to say what it's better than, but I looked at the list and I feel confident that any of these answers is better than at least one thing on the list. So for Best Actress, I would have liked to see Jodie Comer for The Last Duel. She was really good in that movie. Did you get around to watching that one? I haven't watched that one. You would like it, dude. It's pretty awesome. Ridley Scott movie. Of course, Ridley Scott got kind of shut out this year, but another best actress, Elena Haim for Licorice Pizza. Uh, She holds down that movie and she does great. But I, I feel like people tend to do really well on Paul Thomas Anderson movies, but it was her first movie and she fucking killed it. Uh, best Supporting Actress, Vera Farmega for The Many Saints of Newark. No part of me thought she would ever be nominated for that because she was playing a pre-existing character from The Sopranos. But like, she should. She fucking nailed it, dude. She absolutely nailed it. She was so good in it. All right. Best Actor, Bradley Cooper got shut out in Nightmare Alley, which like... I'm not totally heartbroken for, but he should have got a best supporting nod for licorice pizza playing fucking crazy ass John Peters, who's like threatening people with gasoline and (laughs) and a match and fucking all sorts of crazy shit in that movie. I've been saying for the last month, I would be really fucking pissed off if he didn't win. So Oscars, you better fucking make this right. Not make a bunch of dumbass picks because you already got my fucked up column. You done fucked up? Yeah. Best Supporting Actor, kind of Jared Leto and House of Gucci. I'm not going to lie. I hate to throw any support behind Jared Leto, but I just went for a weekend with Amanda and we're at the hotel and at a certain point, everything was shut down. We could only go to the bar and it was kind of a lame setup there. So we didn't really want to go there. So I was like, well, how about if we pay for a movie? And she's like, what do you want to watch? I was like, do you want to watch House of Gucci? And so she was in and I'll give a review for that another time. But Jared Leto is wearing a 
fat suit and like he's weird and bald and I don't know what he's doing in the movie, but it's fucking hilarious all the way through. Like he is such a weird loser and you can't take your eyes off of him. And it's just one of those things where like if the Oscars wanted to have a little bit of fun, they would have put Jared Leto or Bradley Cooper in there and they didn't. It's like the no fun Oscars, you know? Yeah. Do you remember the last really fun actor nomination we got? Like something that was just like hilarious and a lot of fun. It's like, I can't even remember. It's, I feel like it's been a long time. See, and my memory goes where I get it confused with the MTV movie awards. So, <laughs> okay. So what's popping in your mind here? Jim Carrey. hundred percent. He did not get nominated. I'm sure of it. I don't think he's ever been nominated for a thing. I would be shocked. Uh, I thought he did for man in the moon. I mean, go ahead and look it up, but I'm pretty sure he did not. He was putting all his eggs in the, I'm going to be a serious actor basket for a while. And I feel like it bore no fruit. So while you're looking that up, uh, best cinematography, I thought Robert Yauman for the French dispatch should have been up there as well as production design for the French dispatch. Like these are two categories with Wes Anderson. Anytime he has a movie up, he should just have an automatic nomination in one of those categories. And I kind of wonder if they're just getting bored of him or I don't know. But in particular, the cinematography, I saw so many things that they did with that 4-3 frame that I've never seen before. And they had another nominee that was in a 4-3 aspect ratio. So it can't just be the aspect ratio why they didn't pick it. But it was really, really incredible. And I'm pretty bummed out that it didn't make it. You close there? He did get nominated for a SAG award. Yeah, there you go. Man in the Moon. Yeah, it's different. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of SAG awards, too. That's that's what people don't talk about necessarily is like it's just Screen Actor Guild. So there's a lot of acting awards on there. This was male actor in a leading role. Okay. So for best visual effects, look, I know nobody likes the movie or likes it that much, but I was looking at some options there. Once again, not going to throw shade yet. That's for when we play believable badass and bullshit after the Oscars. Matrix Resurrection should have been on there. There was some really good fucking special effects on there. There's one movie in particular that I just look at it and I'm like, how can you fucking make a case for the visual effects over that? You know, like whether you like it or not, they were fucking stunning in that movie. I mean, am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. Okay, and then the last for best documentary, The Beatles Get Back. How is that not on this list? I have a hard time putting that just because it's more just republishing footage more so than telling a story. I don't know. I would say it like recontextualizes everything. Like they often don't use the same shots that were used in the documentary before. And the other documentary is like, what, 90 minutes? Like this is like eight hours. It's so much. I know. And I was trying to read stuff. It was just people theorizing that it couldn't be up for an Oscar because it didn't have a theatrical run, but it did. Like it, it had a very, very short theatrical run and it was actually made for theaters. He was actually going to put out this like six and a half hour movies in theaters. And before people are like, that's too long, like OJ made in America, played on ESPN and it played in a couple of movie theaters and it won an Oscar and an Emmy. So it's not like it wouldn't have been eligible. It's the documentary everybody talked about. And it feels like whenever that happens, they very, very rarely nominate it for an Oscar, you know? Which is so weird for a documentary. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird that they're like, we just want ones that don't make any money. 
<laughs> and I'm not saying they should have money making ones, but it's just a fuck. It's weird that like everybody was universally who watched it was like, I fucking love this documentary. It seemed like they didn't even consider it. Five things over it that nobody's ever heard of, you know? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's. I guess I should watch them and get back to you on that. But right now, it, it was my favorite movie of the year, so I have kind of a hard time wrapping my head around that. Okay, so now we're going to review a couple of movies that are up for some Oscars. So this is Being the Ricardos, which is on Amazon Prime right now. So it's up for Best Actress for Nicole Kidman, Best Actor for Javier Bardem, and Best Supporting Actor for J.K. Simmons. This is about Lucille Ball and Ricky Ricardo, okay? Okay. And it's supposed to mostly take place with a couple of flashbacks within this one-week period or where Lucille Ball was accused of being a communist. She found out she was pregnant, and so she was fighting with the censors, trying to get that on the air. And then she's battling with the staff over a whole variety of things. And the first thing I noticed when I'm watching this is like, okay, you're truncating everything. Like, I know it's a movie, but it's also, once you introduce the flashbacks to it, I don't see why you still have to set this within a one-week period. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Unless it really was just the worst week ever. There's no way that all happened. There's just, there's no way. I'm very, very certain it was not all in the same week. I'll give you an example. So in the same week, they also have the thing where Lucille Ball is fighting with the supporting actress in the show over like her losing too much weight on top of the communist thing and on top of the pregnancy thing like you think all three of those things happen the same week there's no way i mean it's possible but i really doubt i don't think it's possible i don't believe it (laughs) nobody has a week like that no way uh but there's more egregious stuff and the main thing is aaron sorkin really can't write comedy He can't. He's fucking terrible at it. Now, I loved Sports Night. I think it was Sorkin's first show. I could be mistaken on that. But the reason I loved it was because I viewed it as a drama that was sometimes funny. And that was fine. But he keeps doing this thing where he like grabs something comedic and then he grounds it in so much drama that it saps out the comedy. So case in point, did you ever see Live on the Sunset Strip? Nope. It's fucking terrible, dude. It's a Saturday Night Live sketch show where there's no funny sketches. And the writers just fight with each other the whole time. And they're always like basically at war with each other. And it's like, why did you pick a sketch show for this? <laughs> you know what I mean? This is clearly not your avenue. He's more interested in the politics and people kind of bashing up against each other in a workplace. And I just don't see where that fits in with comedy. And that absolutely applies to this you just have lucille ball is fighting with all the writers some of them because she feels like they're sexist some of them because they're overweight some of them because they're women and they have different ideals um some of them are producers who won't let her come on and be pregnant she's constantly nagging ricky going after him for cheating which i do know was a thing but that's a constant through line ricky ricardo almost solely exists in this to just talk about him having affairs which is also kind of shitty that like they reduce him to one thing when it's being the ricardos right it's not like being lucille ball it's being the ricardos and they have javier bardem basically just lying at her about cheating almost the entire movie that's that's like 80 percent of his function in this movie And so you watch it and your stomach just feels like it's tying in knots. But even worse, dude, they do comedy scenes that were in the show, like real iconic scenes. And I don't know what it is. I think maybe it's that Nicole Kidman doesn't really have comedic timing. None of the jokes work. 
and we talked about this on in syndication, right? Like we, we did a deep dive into Lucy and we all watched a bunch of episodes for it. And I feel like something we were talking about was how funny it still was all these years later, right? Oh yeah. That stuff really holds. Yeah. And it's like, they show some of the scenes that are really, really iconic. And it's just like, they're not funny. They just don't work. And then I don't feel like anybody really wants to talk about this, but I feel like I have to mention it because like Nicole Kidman had a lot of work done and it's honestly really distracting watching her try and play this famous person. But then her face has clearly been carved up a bunch of weird ways, you know, and they do a lot of close ups on her face because like Lucille Ball was so much of it was like reactions in her face. Right. Like, do you remember when we talked about how she would apply her lipstick a certain way? So that she would look like she had different expressions on her face. Yeah. And in this, it just feels like Nicole Kidman can't move her face. You know, like it feels like she's had so many facelifts. It's sort of frozen in certain places. It comes off as really weird. And I don't like to go after people for their work on their face or whatever. But in this particular case, I felt like it really hurt the performance. That's a fair beat. So Javier Bardem was serviceable, but he doesn't really stand out in it. Like I said, like he's just sort of reduced to to a lot of the like smooth talking and while well, he's like kind of cheating on her. But I do got to say J.K. Simmons is playing uh, the actor who played Fred on the show. <laughs> Perfect casting. Yeah. And he kills it, dude. He's so good. Uh, William Frawley, I think, is the actor's name. He kills it, dude. Like, it's crazy because after we, I watched this with Amanda and then we watched a couple of episodes of Lucy and Amanda was immediately upset because there's like swaths of episodes gone from every streaming service that has I Love Lucy. And I was like, oh yeah, I went through that too. We were watching it and I was like, wow, J.K. Simmons really, really killed it because he had all the mannerisms that William Frawley had. It's kind of uncanny because he naturally doesn't really look like him. He's just bald. You know what I mean? <laughs> bald white guy, older age. But you watch this and you're like, he's like slouching a bit. He's kind of working on like puffing out his gut, even though you know he's fucking cut like a diamond, you know? Like he makes himself look slumpy, but he also sounds a lot like him. Like it's it's pretty good. He really does do a great job in this movie. So if there's a bright point to this movie, I think J.K. Simmons really fucking kills it. Okay, so let's talk about Power of the Dog. So we've had this in here for a little bit. So first off, I want to say up for Best Picture, director for Jane Campion, actor for Benedict Cumberbatch, supporting actress for Kirsten Dunst, two supporting actors for Jesse Plemons and Cody Smith McVie, the score, which is Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead. Who would have thought? <laughs> and then it was up for adapted screenplay for Jane Campion, cinematography for Ari Wegner, production design, film editing, and best sound. Should we talk? about the plot first takes place 1925 montana two brothers they're running a ranch jesse plemons benedict cumberbatch they go into town they meet kirsten dunce she runs the local eatery jesse plemons gets infatuated with her well during the dinner benedict cumberbatch makes an ass of himself and really upsets Kirsten Dunst and her son. Everybody's leaving. Jesse Plemons is paying the bill. He goes in and sees she's crying and souls her then. So they create this relationship and they ended up getting married. She moves to the ranch and Benedict Cumberbatch is just an ass. That's probably a good 
place to stop without spoiling stuff except to say at some point her son comes back like i think he was off at school and he's being schooled somewhere else so he comes back and then benedict cumberbatch is sort of turning his ire onto him as well and we'll get back to that in a sec into the spoiler free thing i want to talk about the landscapes on this really quick so this was all filmed in new zealand correct made to look like montana god damn it it really looks like montana doesn't it no there's not a fucking tree to be seen. <laughs> if, if they would have said it's northern Wyoming, I would have totally believed. Were you upset at its portrayal and not being in Montana? No, because I knew that going. <laughs> okay, I have to let the cat out of the bag here a little bit. So I wanted Brandon to watch a best picture. And I knew this was going to be up. It had so much heat around it. A month, two months ahead. It was just everybody talked about this movie. So I knew it was going to be up. And so the way that I got Brandon to listen to it was I told you it takes place in Montana. And I left it at that. And I did that because I noticed around my neighborhood so many people were like talking about this movie. And the first thing they always said was like, it takes place in Montana. And it makes me laugh so much because there's like this big pride around the state where it's just like, oh, it's Montana. It's got to be good, like over and over again. So I did this to like lure you in, but I was afraid you would find out it was New Zealand, like before you watched it and not even watch it. <laughs> Because if I just told you to watch this movie that's a Western without any Western things, I don't think you would have watched it. (laughs) Benedict Cumberbatch, in preparation for this movie, he actually trained on a ranch here in Montana. So it does have some Montana roots. But it wasn't filmed on location. No, not at all. It's New Zealand. I gotta say, dude, it looks like Montana to me. I don't know. I guess we just disagree there. But I'm kind of amazed at how many different geographic looking things there are in New Zealand. Because New Zealand's not all that big. But holy fuck, dude. I've just been seeing more and more shows where it's like they got places that look like ranches. They got places that look like Lord of the Rings, you know. (laughs) Places with swear wolves. Yeah, exactly. Cityscapes. You got like places that Xena stomps around in. You know, it's pretty good, man. We got that out of the way. What did you feel about the acting really quick? How did you feel about Benedict Cumberbatch? Because I kept looking at him and I was like, I'm surprised that I actually believe this character because when you see him normally, nothing in that screams Montana and Rancher to me, but I kind of believed it when I was watching it. Was I alone in this? I'm with you. How did you feel about Jesse Plemons? I don't feel there was much stretch for him. He definitely just plays quiet characters. I gotta say, this is one of the ones I am going to point to. Why did he get this nomination? Totally. Like, I like Jesse Plemons, but he doesn't do anything. You know what he deserves recognition for is uh, Breaking Bad. Because of the way that character is done, like, he seems like he's just this quiet, kind of all-American boy, but then you realize there's something very twisted about him, and the way that he plays it really emphasizes the twistedness of him. And I don't have any strong feelings about him in this movie, which is fine but i always feel like actor nominations are usually showy yeah and i find it weird that he's not showy and he got a nomination for this when bradley cooper was right there he was right there i completely agree with you on jesse plemons when he announced that he was getting married to chris or got married to chris he didn't actually say it he just kind of made some vague references 
And we get the information from Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> Is that what happened? Like, I was watching this movie and I was like, oh, wow, it's a Fargo season two reunion. Like, that was seriously <laughs> what I thought. And then yeah. I heard they're in another movie coming up. And I was like, oh, wow, they must really like being together. I wonder if they're dating. And I looked it up at the computer and I was like, they're married? Like, how did I not hear about this? <laughs> so that makes sense. What'd you think about the direction of this movie? Jane Campion. So she did the piano before this. I feel like she's really good at getting understated performances where she's got a lot of people that you can kind of see the intentions of her actors, even if they're not necessarily showing it. She, she tends to have a lot of repressed characters in her stories. No, I feel like that's there. The son doesn't say a lot, but we get a strong performance. Benedict Cumberbatch does a great job at being completely unlikable. Dude, and so many penises in this movie. <laughs> so many penises. Like, Jane Campion's famous for putting penises in her movie, but, like, she outdid herself on this one, dude. There's a lot of penises. We don't just get a Harvey Keitel penis, dude. We get, like, 20 ranchers by a, a river showing their penises, and then we get porno later with penises. <laughs> like... <laughs> It's still got nothing on Jackass forever. So this leads me to the spoiler section of this. If you don't want to hear it, just scan ahead a couple of minutes. And when you hear Carl, you'll be fine. And we'll get into your problems with this because I'm guessing maybe the end has something to do with it. I want to talk about that end. When Benedict Cumberbatch's character starts to hate on the kid, he finds that Benedict Cumberbatch's character has these gay porn magazines basically hidden in this little area. And the kid finds them and he realizes that the kid found them. And so he starts to buddy up to him to try and like get him to not tell anybody. We find out he had a lover who died and he just became bitter, I presume, because his lover was gone. And so he just kind of just made everybody around him miserable rather than trying to go on with his life in a way. And he starts to really feel for the kid and actually falls in love with the kid. And I say kid because this kid's like, what, 16 probably? Oh, he is early 20. I mean the character. No, he's college age. Is he? Yeah, he was away in college. Wow, he's so baby-faced, dude. I was sure he was like 16. Anyway, so he starts to fall in love with this kid. Meanwhile, the kid goes and cuts some strips of, is it rawhide? Rawhide. Off of an animal that's already died. From anthrax. Yes. They had a scene earlier where he like kills a rabbit. It was a rabbit, right? Yeah. Went away to school. He was studying to be a surgeon. Yes. And so he's killing animals to um, study them, basically. And you get a little bit of a creepy vibe, but they don't hang on it too long to where it colors the kid too much it just seems like this kid's very clearly gay and is teased by everybody because he doesn't want to hide it he doesn't feel like it's necessary to hide anything about himself and so when benedict cumberbatch starts to reach out to this kid and, and start to care for him he also is like trying to teach him like you need to hide this stuff or else it's gonna haunt you you know and it basically leads to a scene where um the kid's mom who he's been terrorizing the whole time is getting drunker and drunker and she sells off his rawhide and he gets so fucking mad because he's going to make a rope for this kid. And so the kid gives him the anthrax uh, tainted rawhide and then he's got like a wound on his hand. And so he gets sick from anthrax and dies at the end. And I think they give the impression the kid did that on purpose, right? Did you get that impression? Oh, definitely. Because they showed him going up to the disease uh, killed animal and taking the rawhide strips off 
And you can tell at the end he's watching Jesse Plemons' character, who is Benedict Cumberbatch's brother, who's just tortured by him all the time. And he's with his new wife, and they're very happy in that moment. And you can tell he kind of did it for them. But how did, how did you feel about this? First off, did you see the end coming? No. It completely caught me off guard, dude. <laughs> like, completely. I thought one of two things was going to happen. I thought either Benedict Cumberbatch was going to soften and fall in love with the kid, and that would just kind of be the end of it. Or more likely, I thought Kirsten Dunst would snap and, like, shoot him from behind or something like that because she was drinking so much. In no way did I fucking see that coming. It completely caught me off guard. And that's one of the things I really liked about this movie was all the clues were there. I just didn't put it together, but I even rewatched it and I was just like, that's fucking smart. Everything's laid out there. Like that movie just kind of stayed with me after I watched it. And uh, I watched it a couple of weeks ago and haven't been talking about it on the show. Cause I've been thinking about it and processing it and thinking of the things I wanted to say. Like this movie has been living with me in a way that I don't think any other movies have this year. So what did you not like about it? It was Benedict Cumberbatch, his character. He did a really good job playing that character, but I really hated that. Everything he stood for. I've known lots of people like that, that I've had to deal with. And it just really bothered. That's fair. I get that. Again, it's it's not a diss on Benedict or his portrayal. It's the character. It almost sounds like a compliment to it, actually. If if he reminds you of that so much that you don't even want to watch it, right? No, he did what he that character needed to be. But you don't think this should be a best picture nominee? I don't feel like it had much to say that that was my big beef with it it just there was a lot of time for not a lot of story i don't agree with you but that's okay i will say this was based off a novel so this has been around for 60 something years easily it's had staying power for sure. We got differing opinions on it, but that's okay. I think anything that ends the way this movie ends is going to be polarizing. <laughs> like there's no, there's no getting around it, right? Yeah. We're here with Carl. Yep. I wanted to start out just kind of closing off the Oscar stuff and talking about Nightmare Alley because I know you watch it. Did you manage to finish it? <laughs> no. <laughs> Okay. I tried, All right, but well, I forgot about it. I will say that by the end of it, you sympathize with the, the person that you really shouldn't sympathize with because of how they lay it out. And uh, I thought it was pretty clever the way that they did it, but I thought it was a pretty well done movie. It's basically about a guy who joins a, a traveling circus. What, carnival? What would that be? I'd say... Carnival. Carnival. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> HBO, a, Carnival. Right? That was a great show, by the way. Yeah. Or at least I enjoyed it, uh, even though they didn't finish it off. But it was not trending great the way no, it, it, I, I heard it, what they were going to do. And, it was one of those shows that started off with so much promise yeah. and then just went off the rails. And you're like, what is even happening? It went Twin Peaks off the rails. Yeah. Like, just none of this makes any sense. Never mind that you're they had so a guy steeped. from Twin Peaks in it, right? <laughs> You're so steeped in this like lore and myth like uh 
talking in metaphors that like everything is super vague and even when you they're revealing stuff the things they're revealing are so cryptic that you don't feel like anything was actually revealed yeah the twist is like well that was convoluted and i don't understand it so if you haven't seen carnival basically it's like this guy who you're following can essentially heal people but he does it by sucking the energy from other things and so they set it up kind of like he's going to be evil and then you have a preacher who who is preaching and trying to help people, but he's also getting powers at the same time. And by the end of the first season, you realize like, nope, the the preacher is the evil one and the guy in the carnival is the good one. And it was really clever the way they did it, but the second season couldn't really hold up to that first season. And then it just ends suddenly with no resolution whatsoever to anything. Because it got canceled. That was back in the day where HBO was like, every show we're going to give at least two seasons because we believe in it. And it just lost audience in the second season. Now, this is like that minus the supernatural aspect plus a healthy dose of the old movie Freaks. Yes. Yeah. There's some, there is for sure an homage to Freaks because it has to do with a man joining a carnival, gaining a skill that allows him to take advantage of people and then using it to exploit people. He's even warned by the person that teaches him the skill of like basically talking to the dead, like tricking people into thinking that he can talk to the dead. And the guy's warning him at the beginning, like, don't buy into your own bullshit because you'll go wait in too deep and you'll get yourself into trouble. And his arrogance kind of pushes him into doing it anyways. And then you know, goes, he's going to take a downfall. Everything yeah. is, is totally I actually haven't seen the ending of the movie, but I successfully guessed the end of the movie. You did. We talked about it because I was trying to get you to watch to the very end because there are parts of the movie that are very frustrating but when you get to the end I felt very satisfied with the entire movie having seen the end I could kind of see the journey it took and why it had to go that way but I think we both agreed just really well done and a lot of avenues the movie is fucking beautiful and it's all up to this director of photography that is now I'm assuming a working partner with Guillermo del Toro because he's worked on his last four movies and including Shape of Water which he was at least nominated for if not won for it, I don't remember if it won cinematography or not but it definitely won best picture so it's got that shine on it for sure and it wasn't my choice for best picture but I thought it was a really well made movie my, and enjoyed it like my I immediately saw Crimson Peak in this movie with the lighting and the com- everything visually about it the way color either pops or doesn't pop and depending on the scene that you're watching current trend in blockbuster films is for something to either be extremely colorful or for something to be extremely saturated and it doesn't go back and forth they're not playing with color they're picking one thing and being like this is the thing like you watch a Zack Snyder movie and everything is washed out for the entire movie you watch like a James Gunn superhero movie and it's so bright and colorful and just gorgeous and it's like they're taking inspiration from different art styles and being like my movie's this art style with this director of photography he's more like why not both? Why not use color for scenes where color is going to enhance the scene? And why not wash things out when we're in a situation that is fits that color palette better? Uh, reminds me of like uh, the use of the girl in the red dress in Steven Spielberg's uh, uh, Auschwitz movie. Schindler's List. Uh, reminds me of the use of color in... Uh, In the fucking Sin City movie, you know, like where you would just have a black and white film, but then just like 
a girl's lips are red or a girl's dress is red or like the yellow bastard is just gross and bright piss yellow, you know, like when everybody else is in black and white. And that is like kind of a more simplified version of the concept. But speaking of Robert Rodriguez, we've got a guest coming on who worked with Robert Rodriguez. And I'm just going to leave it there because I'm not sure exactly when it's going to happen. He agreed to do an interview, but we're waiting for the timing to work out. So it could be a bit, could be soon. I I have no idea, but uh, we will have somebody talking about Robert Rodriguez on the show. So I'm very, very excited about that. For sure. Yeah. (laughs) I have one other Oscar review and I can do this super fast. And that's Drive My Car, which is this Japanese movie about a guy going through grief. He is a writer and his wife is a writer and she cheats on him and he finds out but doesn't really say anything and then he comes home one day and she's dead and then it cuts to like two years later now i'm not going to go into beat for beat about this movie but it's about grief and it really makes you wallow in it it's a three hour movie and everything i told you happens at the beginning and then it just keeps going and i think it had purpose and intention and how they layered it out like they're trying to make you really live with this grief and understand it but man i just could not get on the wavelength of this movie it just did not speak to me and i've gone through grief a lot this year like there's been a couple of things and so it's not like i don't have the understanding of it firsthand it's one of those ones you're either gonna vibe with it or not so i thought it was a well-made movie it just it didn't speak to me in any way so moving on they dropped a trailer for nope jordan peele's new movie you were saying not of planet earth right i think that's what nope means and i read it that may mean more than too. it may mean more than one thing because that's the thing about jordan peele movies is that every symbolism in his movie typically has layers oh sure get out like get out of my body also like get out of my house right yep. like uh, us is like the two people that are basically share one personality but then also united states like it's about the united states so yeah you're 100 percent accurate on that so like and that's like the thing that delights me about every upcoming jordan peele movie and also simultaneously kind of annoys me a little bit is like he is one of the only directors making movies today that when you see a trailer of his or when you see a movie of his you're as obsessed with finding the underlying commentary as you are with just enjoying the movie for what it is and i don't like that i feel obligated to do all this extra work (laughs) to like (laughs) understand his movies and i'm not saying that like at the same time i'm delighted that his movies are so intricate and intelligent and clever that they have those aspects because not many other people are doing that yeah but it's like an obligation at this point (laughs) yeah we have to like dissect that and i know what you're saying but what i like about that trailer is is you don't have to rip them apart you can just enjoy them on the surface but i mean i feel obligated as a cinephile i do too as a cinephile i feel obligated to and and like uh, and it also it helps that there that shit is actually there and that we're not just like projecting onto the movie we're not plucking stuff out of the ether it's all there like he is fucking writing these really smart scripts his scripts are smart as fuck it's why there's three years between us and this you know it's because he took his time to figure it out and you might say well there wasn't that much time between us and get out but i would say the difference is get out was written well before he directed like he was sitting on that when he was in 
Key and Peele. And Michael Keegan Key was saying that like he had read that when they were doing that sketch show. And so he was just sitting on it waiting for an opportunity to make it. I'm so glad he got it. Me too. Oh my God. He's dude. killing it. And I'm super excited. The fact just... that you can have a teaser trailer that like we're not even talking about the trailer just yet, but like the teaser trailer yeah. that says that I don't even want to see a trailer now. And big words come down like over the house. I'm just like, how many directors can even do that anymore? There's like Tarantino, Jordan Peele, uh, Spielberg, probably. And now it's not even a guarantee to get box office seats. It's just a guarantee that people are going to be it's going to be on people's radars, but not that they'll watch it. Right. Well, like, Spielberg, people, I mean, West Side everybody Story's knew West Side that, Story right? happened. Yeah. But not as many people watched it as we're aware of. it. I'm telling you right now, though, because I've been eyeing this because I'm trying to watch all the best picture movies. The only one I haven't seen yet is West Side Story. That's hitting Disney Plus in the beginning of March. Watch. There's going to be a major discussion about it when that happens. Oh, yeah. Because It'll be, it's, it's one of those ones that people, I think, were like, I'll just wait till it hits streaming. Yeah. Which is a bummer. But also, like, Spielberg's got so many hits, he'll be just fine. <laughs> uh, I don't need to see West Side Story because I know the story of Romeo and Juliet. It is the same story. And it, yeah. that's the story. And if I'm going to watch a Romeo and Juliet movie, I'm sorry. I'm watching Tromeo and Juliet. <laughs> not Romeo plus Juliet. <laughs> no, sorry. Not the, no Kate Winslet, Leonardo DiCaprio. Only the one where the person that speaks with the most Berean prose is Lemmy from Motorhead. <laughs> <laughs> And like, there's a scene where James Gunn's little brother, Sean Gunn, flips off another guy. And that guy's like, did you just give me the finger? And he goes, I didn't give you the finger. I still got all my fingers. And then, you know, those old school paper slicers that you'd have at school that yeah. you could slice like 200 still pages at them. once. They're big and heavy. And they're like, he cuts off Sean Gunn's fingers with those. And he's like, now you can give me a finger kind of thing. Like, it's pretty stupid. Right before that happens, the manager of the club where this scene is taking place in has brought a girl back into his office. She's like, I've only got five minutes. And he's like, that's good. I only need two. If you want to really hear and about Carl's love of this, in addition to all the times he's brought it up on this podcast, <laughs> did I, I would do take a, a listen. office battle? Uh, you did a uh, top five auteurs with me for a cosmic void a couple weeks back. And you talked about Tromeo and Juliet a lot on it. I we, did. Yeah. Cause you brought up James Gunn as one of I your favorite auteur directors. I know. <laughs> And it should be noted that he didn't actually direct this movie. He just wrote the script. It was directed by Lloyd Kaufman. But like that guy was his one of his mentors. And it was like his first legit. It was I think it was the first script he sold to somebody. I believe it. Like Lloyd Kaufman got him his foot in the door, you know, in Hollywood. Which he's is, done he's it done for it, a few yeah, people. Him yeah. and Roger Corman, man. Absolutely. <laughs> but Roger Corman. Weirdos. The most. Like yeah. He's, oh, yeah. he has a track record of bringing up people and showing that they can work cheap and within a budget and if you can do that for a Corman movie and have it work then you almost are guaranteed a yeah. career in Hollywood at least like to get a chance like a foot in the door you know but let's get back to Nope so I like that they start off showing this clip where history lesson yeah exactly and it's also like really interesting history like it's that's fascinating yeah it was essentially a black man riding a horse right was the uh First thing ever filmed as a test reel for like proof of concept that, that film is a thing. And then the way that they tie it in is it apparently takes place at this ranch, which is where it was filmed. And so oh, the something... way Kiki Palmer says, you know, ever since they first put uh, images on film, we've had skin in the game. Like, oof, man, Kiki Palmer is crushing it in this trailer. 
And a little bit of a, super, a metaphor right there too, right? Skin in the game. Yep. Like, yeah. I'm not super. See, every line, see, I know. Man, I was, every I was fucking bolstering line what you're movie. saying. Like, uh, I'm super excited about the cast of this movie. Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer both are fantastic. I'm not super familiar with Kiki Palmer, but just from this trailer alone, I'm like, I'm in on seeing you be on screen. I want to see you play this character. I want to see you play a bunch of other characters. And I didn't see him in the trailer, but I know Steven Yoon's in this movie too. And Steven Yoon is fucking great. Yeah, like, I love that Steven Yoon. That guy kills it. So, yeah, very excited Man, about he this. just like has really exploded ever since he was, he got his start on Walking Dead, right? Was that his first? Thing? I don't know if that was his first, that but was it's definitely like, his breakout. Yeah, that was his breakout. And now he's like invincible. He's the voice of, and I like, like the casting of that show, man. Fuck. I'm trying to remember the name of the movie i think it's like uh, mirani or miani or something like that but last year he had a, a thing that was up for best picture it was fucking fantastic they took something that would have been cookie cutter where it's like you move to a new town and then the family gets under oh, all I the stress trying to adjust but then instead you make it an immigrant story and it's so much more interesting because it, there's so many wrinkles in it because it's this family that's from another country and it makes it worth watching for sure and steven yoon just sells it so yeah i'm really excited to see him and nope but we have a little bit of news to get to before we talk about the book of boba fett's finale so futurama joe dimaggio will not be joining the cast when they reboot it on hulu or at least at they this won't, point he uh, won't they are trying to cast a voice alike for the first table read that's where they're at in negotiations. Negotiations have stalled as far as getting him on board, but there is huge fan backlash against doing a show with everybody but John DiMaggio. And there's a little backlash against, honestly, against Katie Seagal and, uh, oh, God damn it, what's his name? Uh, whoever does. They, Billy West. Billy West. Because... You know, there were ne ongoing negotiations and then without discussing it with John DiMaggio, they accepted the offer. And so they're kind of, from what I gather from people in the industry, now I'm not talking about fans, I'm talking about like people like James Adomian who saw the casting call for a Bender voice alike go out in the private sector among amongst voice actors. Like the casting call went out, agents were calling their clients and saying, hey, do you want to read for Bender? And so that's where this guy got his information, not reading shit on Twitter like the rest of us plebeians. And uh, he was like, when he saw that, his his heart sank. He was like, uh, fuck, I'm not going to respond to that call. And I don't think there are a whole lot of people that will. I feel like John DiMaggio has enough of a reputation in the voice acting world that people feel like they're, they'd be like scabs crossing a picket line. You know, that's what it feels like. Yeah, it feels like stuff was done a little off, like the order of operations was a little off because apparently Disney did what they typically do with things like this, which is they talk to the principals. So you had your three principals we already mentioned, Billy West, Joe DiMaggio and Katie Seagal. But typically they talk it over and then they agree on a contract for all three of them. And for whatever reason, that didn't happen. It's funny that you said that because I read the opposite, which was like John DiMaggio said no before he even talked to the other two. So I don't know where the truth lies. Like only those three really know how it went down. Well, saying no continues negotiations. Saying yes ends negotiations. Right. So I feel like personally, I feel like Billy it's, West and Katie Seagal were the premature ones. As far as it that seems goes, like regardless, there wasn't communication between the three. I feel like we may be in. I think that also I think Hulu and Disney were trying to bully them a little bit. Oh, always. By always. putting out a, oh, we're getting this rebooted 
it's happening. Okay, now if you want to be involved, you can be involved or you can Like, they're doing what they did to the Matrix, which is like, we're making this with or without you. And by that, we mean Warner's with the Matrix, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just mean, like, it's the same kind of situation where in the plot of the Matrix, where they're saying, like, they've asked for this new series. They're going to make it whether you want to be a part of it or not. So you're now the... We've, we've like put the ball in your court. You have to decide if you want to be involved with this on our terms or if you want to not be involved with this. And I think John DiMaggio is like, no, my terms, not your terms, my term. And it's easy to interpret that as like, oh, it's just a rich guy's ego because like a part of me does feel that way you know i'm not gonna ignore that but i also think that that part of me that feels that way is wrong yeah and dimaggio's he's gonna have a lot of pressure on him too because this is disney this is 40 percent of the media landscape if not half you know so it's not just it's not just that he's saying no to futurama it's that like he is risking being blacklisted from everything that they do which is a lot of shit and like disney plays is hardball we've seen this time and time again with creatives when they get pissed off at them they really get pissed off at yeah. them so i honestly don't need any more futurama like if we get more that's cool i'm happy to watch it and enjoy it and appreciate it but if we don't get any more i think we got enough like we've seen what happens when a show goes on for 30 fucking years and it's like a new episode comes out and it's just like another drop in the ocean of the simpsons yeah you know like who even gives a fuck they've recycled their own plot lines so many times over however i will say the simpsons they put out a short on disney plus and they put it on that screen and i watch it right away and they're fucking great so they found ways to get i don't know if great i wouldn't i don't know if i'd call them great i've watched really really enjoy them every time they put one up i've really enjoyed it because it's just 75 in gags in like three minutes and i kind of marvel short ones i just didn't think they were that on on uh on point with the humor i thought the jokes were like just not very good jokes. Not that like I felt like sure... it was the Thirty Rock way of doing it, where you're like it, you just throw yeah. a joke a second, and some of them are going to land, and some of them aren't. But guess, they throw but so many jokes. For me, none of them landed. So Fair. it was just like a big old lead balloon. It just went over poorly. Maybe it's like I haven't been watching The Simpsons for a couple of years, so maybe it just lands. I also more for recently me I miss them. attempted to do a marathon of The Simpsons, and I think I started. The season that has a monorail. So like season four. Season four, yeah. Yeah. And I think I made it to like season 21 before I just like became exhausted. I think I've seen every episode up through 25 or 26 for sure. And then it's a scattering. And And I don't think I've seen any in the last like three years. And that's my whole point is that if Futurama had been going on this long, it would have faded from our caring about it. Oh, yeah. Like Futurama takes breaks. They don't mean to, but that happens. And that actually works out in the show's benefit because it makes you want it. And so much happens in sci-fi while it's off that they have things to parody. And then everything, every time the show comes back, of course, I rewatch it from the beginning. I do not, but I hear you. (laughs) Because it's just the first... First, the early stuff is still like the best stuff. I agree with like, that. Like it, it's definitely not a show that continued to get better with time. No, it kind of hit a level that was like the a Comedy high Central level, but it run. just stayed consistent. Yeah. You don't get those super high peaks. There's a little bit of a diminishment in the Comedy Central seasons because they, you can tell that like that's what I'm saying. There are like, certain they're types not hitting of jokes. peaks anymore. They just stabilize it like they're maybe sixty five percent. I think it got worse. I think it went down because there are 
are certain types of jokes that they never used to do in the Comedy Central days. No, I mean in the Fox days that when the show and I'm talking post the mini movies that were really like four episodes yeah. as one. There was a specific type of joke. And I, I wish I had a, a concrete example off the top of my head, but I don't. There was I a also certain wish type our of crazy joke. neighbor wasn't screaming below us. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Hope that's not picking up on the mics. <laughs> there's a certain type of joke that he that they didn't tell on that show that they started telling when Comedy Central took over and felt like that was a studio thing of saying like, hey, our demographic on Comedy Central skews a bit less mature. And we need some of some less mature jokes in here to appeal to that part of our demographic. It really feels like there was a conscious effort to like add a lower brow joke into the mix. I I didn't notice did not exist. But I will say that when Futurama was on its original run, it was at a time where people were largely not entirely but largely like i'm not gonna let my kids watch the simpsons i'm not gonna let my kids watch futurama because that's for when they're a little more grown up and i think that we went away from that like i think we've gotten so much more permissive with what we let our kids watch in general in society that they're just like they probably felt they had to play to the kids a little bit because that's a big part of their audience i could be mistaken on this that that's just kind of my read um it might be that comedy central had an edict i have no idea but i also feel like they would have been talking garbage about it in the press because that's kind of what they do is when they're unhappy with a decision they talk shit in the press until they get another show (laughs) that's what they do over and over again well if i can i might actually just for fun go back and find an example of the kind of joke I'm talking about, but it just, I can't think of an example. The the episodes from that last season are a little blurry. Yeah, me too. Uh, there's one or two that stick out and that's about it. Yeah. Ivan Reitman died this morning. Ivan Reitman died for real? Yep. I did not see that. Yep. Director of Ghostbusters, 75 years old, uh, no cause of death released, took the family by surprise, caught him off guard, weren't expecting it. That's a real bummer. I mean, I'm torn on whether or not it was a blessing or a tragedy that he got to see Ghostbusters Afterlife before he died. (laughs) I think it's exactly what he would have wanted because it was his kid directing it. Right. And it was like his buddy was like immortalized as a ghost. And it was like all of his friends got to get back together. I guess friends. (laughs) I put friends in quotes because that whole crew, they kind of had their infighting. It's not like they did. They're not like a perfect band of friends, band of brothers the Ghostbusters cast. Didn't Ivan Reitman and like Bill Murray like Harold Ramis and Bill Murray had a huge falling falling out. Yeah. Which was like that's one of those ones that's like big to me because they really worked on comic gold. Like whether you like it or not, it was like stuff that definitely made a dent in pop culture yeah. that people are still talking about. They had a string of hits that sh- helped shape comedy mm-hmm. for years ahead. Yeah. And it's interesting with Harold Ramis too, because he started out as a writer and then at some point wound up in front of the camera for Stripes. And I don't know why that happened with Stripes, but he fucking nails it. And then Ghostbusters, it's like crazy that he He's one of the Ghostbusters because a lot of people at the time were thinking about it as a Saturday Night Live property because you had Aykroyd and Murray. Yeah. But then you throw Ramus as the third lead and it's like, okay, the guy from Stripes? <laughs> like, this guy like, that he's is great, not but an weird. actor? Yeah. And yeah. 
It's it's interesting because he's with movie people. Ramus is known as like a director, producer, writer, and then also did some acting. But with the average person, they're like Egon. You know, yeah. <laughs> I got to think a lot of that is Ivan Reitman. You know, it's it's Ivan Reitman did a really good job of taking these people and finding their comedy styles that work and put it onto the screen. Like a lot of Bill Murray's stuff was improvised. Yeah, they had to completely rewrite it because it was originally written for John Belushi, and there was other rewrite reasons but when they bring in bill murray they're just like okay you're the one that's just gonna poke holes at this because bill murray was really good at that and so they let bill murray do what bill murray does you know yeah that's a real bummer about reitman i wish i'd read that so i could have prepared something but yep he'll be missed yeah but he also did what he was gonna do i don't think he had anything on the horizon that we were missing out on (laughs) it doesn't really seem like he was going to be doing very much more in Hollywood. Yeah. Okay, so the finale of Book of Boba Fett. Basically, the gang all gets back together and they defeat the Pikes, right? What moments in here stand out to you? Um, Good or bad? I was really sad when they killed the Gamorreans. Of all, I mean, of all the characters that could have died in the finale, they had the least personality. They were like the most one dimensional. So it makes sense that they were the ones to die. But it's like killing somebody's dog. They are just so loyal and like not they don't really think deeply about things. They're just loyal. They're like a loyal hound. Yeah. And for them to be just so unceremoniously killed, like forced off a fucking cliff to fall to their death is That was awful. a real bummer. Yeah. <laughs> so that, I mean, I'm not, I don't think that's an example of why the show is bad, but it hurt. That moment hurt a little bit. Uh, I liked everything with the Rancor just about, except every time the Rancor got injured, I was like, he's still just a baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. And then when, when Grogu like, cal- like puts it to sleep and then cuddles up next to it it's just like this is fucking the dumbest most cute thing i've ever seen like it's the dumbest cute thing a baby yoda cuddled up with a baby rancor is like a ridiculous pairing but i liked it can we talk about how luke sent grogu off to tatooine from wherever alone with r2d2 what the fuck dude he trusts r2d2 what he trusts r2d2 but r2d2 is sketchy man he is sketchy at best well he proved himself trustworthy by getting him safely there. <laughs> fair, <laughs> like, fair. Uh, I mean, I guess it worked uh, out okay, but CPS wouldn't look at it the same way. <laughs> what's the one mechanic lady? What's is that? Uh, Amy Sedaris. Amy Sedaris. I don't yeah. remember her character. So she's name, but. she. I'm glad that she showed up. I like seeing her in the show. It's so great that of all people, Amy Sedaris is like one of my favorite characters in a Star Wars property. Is so she's weird. So great, but man. Like when she's <laughs> she's talking to Grogu. Like, did you fly the X wing? <laughs> <laughs> and the bot, the robots are like, beep, 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 beep. She's like, I know the bot flew it. Shut up. <laughs> Just talking to the kid. Like, give me a fucking break. And then like the weird budding romance between her and the smarmy uh, politician bureaucrat guy. I would honestly watch a show about those two. Would you I ship would watch them? that. Would you ship them? It's, they've been shipped. They have been shipped. They were flirting with each other. They clearly, there's a thing. There's a spark. I, if there's you a do, spark If there. you do that show, I want to bring in that other Jawa to make it a triangle. Because <laughs> we've established oh, that, that she really likes Jawas. Yeah. And it 
was so funny. We were talking about what a Jawa looks like under the hood, right? And then they immediately, two days later, address that like Jawas are furry. <laughs> it's just like, wow, we know something about them. So now. Uh, here's the thing. How about we do like, you know, Star Trek Lower Decks is like the animated show about what it's like to be not one of the main important people on a starship. Yeah. In Star Trek. What if we did like a Star Wars lower deck with like those two and like Galen Howard's character? <laughs> yeah, there and we like go. And like the bartender, Cobb Vance bartender at Freetown. They'll be doing their thing. And in the background, blurry Mandalorians like fighting some fucking gangsters or whatever. But it's like the focus is like. They're more concerned about whether you can use these credits to pay for your drink or not. They're, because they're like, using different currency now. Yeah, they're like doing the they're doing like the t- trade tariff bullshit in the prequel <laughs> trilogy. But in like a humorous way, I could I would watch that show. I don't know. Like. I really liked, uh, I even though it failed miserably, I really liked that show about the R&D department at the Wayne Corp, you know, Powerless. <laughs> yeah. That's what it's called. I yeah. liked that show. I enjoyed it too. It bombed, but I still enjoyed it. I bought that show on fucking iTunes. My daughter was so upset when... She was asking for when's the second season coming. I was like, I told you, kiddo, like it's they're not making any more episodes. And she could not wrap her brain around the idea that they wouldn't make another season. I'm like, (laughs) no, kiddo, most shows don't get a season two. Yeah, it doesn't usually. You just tend to watch like a lot of the big shows. (laughs) Like most shows get a season and then they're done. And tons of stuff gets one episode and it's done that we don't even see, you know? But she had a hard time wrapping her mind around it. Getting back to Book of Boba Fett. So fuck, I just want to talk about Grogu, dude. God damn. I love his little Mandalorian chainmail armor. Ah, so adorable when he just like... Yeah, he was the best. And him being at the very end, him being super annoying, just banging on the glass with the (laughs) ball because he wants to go in. He wants to go warp speed because he likes going fast. Like, oh, man, we got a little Ricky Bobby baby Yoda (laughs) on our hands. You're not first, you're last. What is the Yoda version of if you're not first, you're last? If not be first, then last you be. (laughs) First you are not, last you will be. Bake and shake we will, buddy. <laughs> I like the idea of a little miniature John C. Riley Yoda character. Dude, All right. Why don't we put John C. Riley in Star Wars? John C. Riley why, why needs to voice yet? a Yoda. John, that is my new. <laughs> he pitch needs to be the future to voice Hollywood. of Grogu. Because you know, eventually they're going to show adult Grogu some, oh at some God. point. That would be the most amazing, wonderful thing is if the first time Grogu ever spoke, it was John C. fucking Riley. Make it happen. Make it happen. <laughs> but not Filoni. But not too soon Dave because Filoni. I'm loving his cooing in this right now. I, I, he should still make those noises. Yeah. And whoever is doing those noises <laughs> should continue to do those noises. It's probably uh it's probably what's his name? The guy who who was the voice of uh Lilo and Stitch. Oh, no idea. He's uh he's bald. He was also Bobby's World. Oh, Howie Mandel? Howie Mandel. Oh, he did the voice of Gizmo in yep. uh, Gremlins. He also did Gizmo. Well, he's so well clearly, known. clearly yes. he's, he's... He's really good at he's little for this, baby yeah. animal noises. He's good at it. But I feel like if he was Grogu, I would have heard about it by now. It's hard to say. It's not hard to say. I would have heard about it by now. Probably some voice actor who's done a ton of shit that... I just don't know their name. Weirdly enough, Howie Mandel voiced himself in an episode of the Harley Quinn animated show. Really? <laughs> That's fun. I don't remember that. 
Also, as and this is completely off the subject, but uh, I think last week I may have mentioned that it's really great. The best kind of trolling, Gail Simone, the comic book writer, doesn't like Y-Wings, so somebody wants to write a Star Wars story and put Gail Simone in as a Y-Wing pilot. Uh, also, there's these constant references to Gail Simone being a bear. I think there was a comic book recently that one of her comic book writer friends made and there's a bear in it and the bear is named Gail. But I was looking when I was looking at Powerless on IMDb, I just happened to notice that uh there was a character that they named Gail Simone. Oh, interesting. In the cast. And I was just like, that's gotta be a Gail Simone like reference to her, the writer. And it's cool that she got that shout out. That is cool. Too bad the show bombed. Damn it. God damn it. I really enjoyed it. And like it was giving a a screen time to people I really like. Danny Pudi, um, Ron Funches. Alan Tudyk. Alan Tudyk. Natalie Morales. I love Natalie. She was Green Fury. And I just like her in all sorts of shit. Although she has a tendency to kill shows. She'll be in a pilot and the show will not get picked up or she will join a cast and that will be the final season of the show. (laughs) Apparently Jennifer Aniston, that was her biggest reputation before Friends took off was if you put her in a pilot, she'll be really good and the show won't get picked up. Like that happened so many times with pilots apparently. Like Natalie Morales has a lot of shows that are one season shows. Like she did that show Abby's where she ran a bar out of her backyard and this was a show that came out right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I liked the cast because one of the guys in it was like the janitor from Scrubs. And I hadn't seen him on anything in a while. And it was good to see him again. And a few other people. And it was also a show that was filmed before a live studio audience. So it had laughter in it, but it wasn't a laugh track. Right. And you know what's funny? Okay, so this is a huge tangent, but I've been thinking about this for a while. There's a new show on Netflix with Will Arnett, Murderville, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. It's a an American version of a British show. And the premise is that it's a murder mystery comedy, but they have every episode has a special guest, celebrity guest, who is not given a script. And the one special guest has to improv their way through the episode. And Will Arnett and the other cast members who are working with the script are throwing crazy shit at these people to get them to break or you know and they have to like go with the flow and it's been very uh critique very receiving positive criticism i watched the first episode because it had conan o'brien in it and i love conan o'brien and it seems like exactly the kind of thing that he would be great at and in fact he is great in it but you know what i feel is missing from this show is a laugh is laughs and that's weird because the pendulum has been swinging away from like laugh tracks and comedies for so long. But one of the places where I feel like laughter still is very fits in very well and is like a good fit is in like late night sketch type humor. SNL is not as funny without a laugh track. Yeah. I don't understand. Well, it's also what made it is. for an audience. Right. You know? And and Conan O'Brien's stuff, like even when he's doing a, rem- a remote and he's, you're like, what the audience is watching a pre-taped thing, the audience reacting to what Conan is doing enhances the experience. Yeah. Having the audience there you reacting. You them for late night shows. And I, I feel like with this show, Murderville, I wish there had been an audience, which is so, because it's, you know, uh, I, I have friends that like will not watch shows with laugh tracks. Like the only comedies they'll watch anymore because like laugh and those are like fake laugh tracks, though, on a lot of these shows. Like, of course, the Disney show, Disney uh, old school, young adult Disney shows like 
the laugh track was so it was like a formula yeah dude it it so had keyboard laugh track on it like and you could even say like it'd be like line small laugh response line small laugh follow-up line big laugh like there is a specific mathematical dramatic and you'd have everybody go Ooh, as if they're or like doing uh, that. and then yeah and uh but that even felt like a somebody's just pushing a button on a computer and being like laugh track here and uh and audiences are often prompted by stuff behind the scenes but that's also can work like it kind of weirdly works for like married with children because well, like no 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 the married with children was a live studio audience right. of college kids that were given beer and right, liquored right. up and that's so what i'm like saying screaming. they're being primed yeah. they're being primed to like react over the top and almost be part of the cast <clears throat> like the audience reaction is like part of that show in such an integral way yeah where other shows it's not and they were also putting eye candy on the screen so that these liquored up like right the hot girl like guys would be like <gasps> christina applegate <gasps> comes off and everyone starts whistling cat calling and right whatever. but then they would also have guests on who are scantily clad constantly on that show yeah i watched a, a random clip popped up on facebook the other day and it was like uh who was Christina Applegate was going up against uh, Dave Festino. No, it was uh, <laughs> no, she was competing for a job with another oh. cute girl. And the other cute girl was, I believe who's the girl from the first Wayne's world or from the Wayne's world, like the Tia Carrere. Tia Carrere was the other girl. And like, uh, they were both trying to be like the showroom girl where like the car is being shown off and they're standing there and being like, just displaying, putting their arms to be like, this is the car, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, like Kelly had this special move that she did where she kind of does this like shake shimmy and goes down and up and like cleavage bouncing all over the place and whatnot. And then Tia Carrere like saw her doing it and like in the audition did that move first. I remember this episode. Yeah. <laughs> and then eventually they got back. Like I think that Tia Carrere like kind of seduced Bud to get Bud to tell her about her secret move that Christina Applegate had. who's supposed to be a loser, he sure gets laid a lot in that show. But always as a means to an end. Yeah, he but He never still, gets slept. But he still. gets a lot of, yeah, yeah, he sleeps with a lot of women, but never because they like him. Always because he has something that they want. Yes. Which, boy, has is that one of the aspects of that show that has aged the worst? I'll tell you the worst <laughs> one. I, I was watching this and I was like, oh, this is the start of the men's rights movement. Because when they would do yeah. No Ma'am, it's 100%. Like that show, Brandon picked it for in syndication when we used to do that podcast. And I had warm, fuzzy memories of it from when I was young. <laughs> and then I watch it. I'm like, fuck, dude, this is like exact opposite of where I'm at on the political yeah. spectrum. Like, it's it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. But this is probably a good place to cut off. So take it easy. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Follow us on Instagram at redwood underscore sound underscore labs, Facebook at facebook.com slash redwood sound labs, or email us at notsafernetwork at gmail.com. Not Safe for Network was created by Carl Borneman, Brandon Beardsley, and Alex Small. Produced by Alex Small. A podcast about the narrative and effective politics of war movies and their productions, too. Charles Horgan and Aaron Donaldson bring you a brand new podcast, The Real War Project. Dip in and out of subjects with Lauren and Sarah's irreverent points of view with the hilarious podcast, Dippers. Catch up with the week's pop culture news as well as reviews of new movies and shows, not to mention the occasional interview with Carl, Brandon, and Biggs on Not Safe for Network. 
Wrestlers wrestle, but sometimes they make movies too. This podcast lets you know how they do. Listen to Eric and Connor in all three seasons of Movies with Wrestlers. One by one, Jeremiah and Biggs break down influential movies and some wretched ones too in the podcast you can't miss, A Cosmic Void. 